This is a podcast by The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Ernest Lewis. Now, on 10th April, Parliament resumed with an address by President Halima Yaakov. She outlined the government's priorities, policies and programmes for the rest of its term ahead of the next election which has to be held by 2025. Parliament then debated points made in her address. Now, with me in the studio for this episode are two colleagues who covered every hour of those debates in Parliament. Deputy News Editor Grace Ho also helped shape the gist, which is the Straits Times' condensed version of daily parliamentary highlights. We have a link in our podcast show notes if you want to pour over the gist after listening to this episode. Hi Grace and welcome back to the podcast. Hello Ernest. And Jean Yao is my colleague at ST who has also been covering Parliament this year, joins us too. Hi Jean. Hi Ernest, happy to be here. So lately in our podcast, we have been featuring a lot more youth voices from the ground. Uh, we've been talking about mentoring, public housing concerns, even the reactions to Budget 2023. Now, one thing stood out in Parliament last Friday, and that was the intention to give young people a voice on national issues. So the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth, MCCY, will introduce youth panels to be launched later in 2023 this year. These panels will be youth-led and supported by the National Youth Council and other government agencies. As Mr Edwin Tong, Minister for Culture, Community and Youth, said in Parliament, in my own engagements with the youths, I found them to be very much seized with the issues of today. And they know that the solutions that they, are, that they can contribute to will make an impact to their lives tomorrow. One point which came up was the desire for a more in-depth discourse. They hoped for more details as to how their feedback and suggestions on policies which were being considered by the government and wanted to understand how their suggestions might result in some trade-offs that perhaps they had not thought about. We agreed that instead of taking an adversarial approach to policy suggestion, we could perhaps engage on these trade-offs and share views on opportunity costs, develop a deeper understanding of these considerations that will be helpful to making policy suggestions. These were all very constructive suggestions, and with this in mind, later this year, we will introduce youth panels. Youth panels will be for youths to develop policy recommendation together with the government. So Grace, tell us what is the key takeaway from this? You know, despite the fact that Singapore is set to attain super-aged status in 2026, right now, one in six citizens are aged 65 and above. But by 2030, it will be one in four citizens. Well, Ernest, as you pointed out, Singapore society is greying rapidly and more people will be confronted by the need to find job opportunities to ensure their retirement adequacy. And this acute increase in the number of older workers and the retired will also pose competing demands on the resources of workplaces, families and communities. But at the same time, you don't really want to see divisions widen between different generations of Singaporeans. So the Prime Minister, for example, in 2014, he cited the example of Japan, where there's unhappiness between the elderly and the younger generation. You know, you have the young who are unhappy that they have to pay for pensions and medical care for the old at the expense of their own financial security. And meanwhile, the old in Japan bristle with the fact that oh, maybe the young are uncaring and ungrateful. And so in looking at the situation here, 
I think giving younger Singaporeans a voice and a say in these things makes a lot of sense, right? First, because it makes for good policy, and second, because it makes for good politics. Why? Because the younger demographic will age into a significant voting bloc, and they in turn will become the new old of Singapore when they get older, and they would have a very different profile from the current cohorts, right? So different levels of education, very different needs and wants, and a very different I would say longer runway, actually, in terms of their long working life. Right. And, and Jean, what about your thoughts? I mean, you're in your late 20s. And what are your thoughts about these uh, proposed youth panels? Uh, did we see some iteration of it through the Forward SG discussions? And, and wasn't it last year, I remember, when Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong urged youth to step up and help write the next chapter of the Singapore story? Yeah, I think there's been a significant push from the government to not only hold these conversations with young people, but also reassure them that their voices and suggestions will be heard. Because I think among the young people, at least, there's this scepticism that you give a suggestion and then nothing comes from it. Uh, last year, I attended this Young Singaporean conference held by the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And I think DPM Wong kind of talked at length about striking this balance and compromise, you know, while looking at attaining this new social compact. So I think he stressed that not everyone can get exactly what they want, but we must continue to try and find common ground and move forward. You see a lot of engagement sessions with the 4G leadership and young Singaporeans trying to understand what their aspirations for Singapore are, because I guess, as Grace mentioned before, this generation... There's a lot of differences compared with previous generations, you know. A lot of us have grown up in a very developed Singapore. Maybe like in terms of education as well, we have different goals and aspirations. So I think it's something that the government is very well aware of. I think after the last GE, in a political sense, PM acknowledged that there are very significant different life aspirations and priorities among this generation. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense for them to engage with young people to find out what they want Singapore to look like. And I also think that we have to dispel this notion that young people don't care in terms of being politically apathetic. I think just yesterday, we ran a story about how parties from both sides of the house are seeing a lot more youth participation. Many of these youths who participate in these parties, they want to engage other Singaporeans about policies that mean a lot to them. So a lot of social policies like feminism and environmental issues. So they do care about all these issues and how Singapore is hoping to address them. On the other hand, right, um, leader of the Opposition and Workers' Party chief, Pritam Singh, called for the 4G government to be receptive to sharing more information. In future, the PAP must not see calls for information as a Trojan horse for ulterior motives or a red herring. When there are requests for detailed figures, the PAP must not turn defensive in response to the parliamentary opposition of the day, playing its role, checking the government of the day. Grace, maybe starting with you first, does this help? Is a social compact without transparency tough? I think it's worth recapping here what Mr Singh said, which is that rather than be defensive or dismiss requests for information as a Trojan horse for ulterior motives, the government should be more open to releasing data. Um, his point was that by filling the information vacuum and doing so early, the government can puncture the xenophobia that surrounds issues like Singapore's foreign talent policy and prevent tension on the ground from building up early on. 
Case in point was the 2021 debate on jobs and foreign talent, where he said um, that getting the PAP government to disclose certain information at the time had been like squeezing blood out of a stone. Now, to some extent, it's a fair comment because the news cycle is much more time-sensitive than it used to be. And if, you know, the authorities don't put out data or information early, then you do run the risk of others front-running what you're about to announce, you know, or you know, people coming up with all kinds of wild conspiracy theories about your intentions. So that transparency is definitely important to build a social compact. But on the other hand, there is also a genuine need for certain kinds of information to be withheld or redacted. In other words, not presented in full, but with sensitive portions taken out. So very hypothetically, for example, let's say I'm reviewing a free trade agreement with a particular country. And there are certain numbers that I'm reviewing which may not make sense to disclose in full because it's not the only FTA that I am reviewing, right? So let's say if other countries are the FTA partners who may be looking on this and reassessing their negotiating positions. And so at different points in time, you know, certain government agencies may decide that, okay, this number is okay to go public, that number isn't. And this decision isn't even set in stone. So depending on negotiation dynamics, it can change over time. So you can also argue that a lot of this sort of policy thinking and background considerations and nuances tend to get lost when we're covering major speeches in Parliament like this, where you have two opposing sides of the House and the policy issues tend to get a bit more politicized. Yeah, especially with the live telecast these days as well. Absolutely. I mean, it helps, but, you know, as you said, you've got to have some perspective on those kind of issues as well. Okay, Jean, what about you? I mean, what about the youth perspective on this issue? To bring in the youth perspective, I think it's hard to reach a consensus or a social compact without trust. I think a lot of young people respond well to when opposition MPs urge the government to be more transparent. Um, one example that comes to mind is when leader of the opposition, Prajam Singh, asked whether HGB would reveal the cost of developing new flats and the amount of subsidies given. And I think the response from Second Minister of National Development, Indrani Raja, was that it wouldn't be meaningful to do so. This exchange was all over social media. I think it was on TikTok, it was on Instagram. And everyone was kind of disappointed with the government for kind of deciding what is meaningful and what is not meaningful. And I think maybe it's because a lot of young people today have grown up in a world where information is always so easily accessible. If you want an answer to something, you just Google it. When information is being withheld, it does kind of raise questions and lead to a lack of trust. But the legitimate reasons why certain information cannot be shared or cannot be released to the public, like the reasons that Grace mentioned before, I think a lot of these reasons don't make sense or even get to the public. So there is a gap in that communication sometimes. Yeah, but I guess, you know, it helps when we have more conversations, you know, nationally and also through, you know, examples like what Grace has given through podcasts like ours and all that. So hopefully it helps with the national discourse going forward. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Back to my conversation with ST's Deputy News Editor Grace Ho and journalist Jean Yao, summing up key highlights from the debate on the President's address in Parliament. Now, Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong stressed, at the end of five days of debate in Parliament on the President's address, that there is no place for populism and political opportunism in Singapore. He was responding to Leader of the Opposition, Pritam Singh, who agreed on the point made. Our stand is very clear. We reject all forms of populism. 
we make sure and we uphold honesty and integrity in policy making. If the government were ever to fall short of these standards, we expect the opposition to call us out and say so. Please do. You have to do it. We expect you to do it. Conversely, if the opposition were to propose ideas and policies that we feel are populist, we likewise will highlight them and highlight our concerns, rightfully so. So I hope that's our common understanding of how we can take Singapore's politics and democracy forward. Insofar as populism and opportunism are concerned, I am quite certain the DPM means that that ought to work both ways. It cannot be a case of pointing fingers at the opposition and accusing them of that uh, when certain actions of uh, ruling party politicians on the ground are no better. Uh, but having said that, uh, I accept uh, DPM's uh, concerns of uh, his of uh, our democracy and certainly the Workers' Party and I hope the opposition in general uh, will be mindful going forward and uh, work towards the betterment of Singapore and Singaporeans. So, Jean, how do you think your generation sees this point made about populism and opportunism in Singapore politics? I think it was quite interesting that DPM Wong responded to this in quite great detail. And I think he started off by saying that he was worried after looking at some other democracies abroad. I mean, it is a very worrying issue that we face globally as well. If you look abroad, elections have been swayed by populistic policies that the public then bought into. So we have very good reason to be wary of you know, such comments and policies. I think among my friends, people are glad to have opposition voices in parliament because they call out when these policies seem to not add up and they hold elected officials accountable for what they say. And I think the same works for the opposition. I think on the first day of the debate last week, we immediately saw Lawrence Wong kind of take issue with some of the WP's proposals because the sums or the figures didn't add up. So it does work both ways. And I think it just means better debate all around and holding everyone to account for what they propose. On April 10, on the opening of Parliament, President Halima Yaakob outlined key priorities for the government. We will continue to prepare our children for the future, starting from their earlier years. We will provide more resources to support those who start out with less. At the same time, we recognize the competitive stresses that have built up in our education system, especially amongst certain segments of society. We will provide everyone with access to a good education and many chances in life to learn and improve. But let us not be unwittingly drawn into an educational arms race and end up worse off as a society. So Grace, you have young children. How young are they? And, you know, maybe from your viewpoint as a parent as well, what do you make of her comments about the danger of an educational arms race in Singapore society? Yeah, um, yeah, some strong sentiments there because uh, one child in primary school and the other who just went into secondary school. Um, I think what the president said is very much in line with what various ministries, government officials have been saying for a long time, which is that they recognize the competitive stresses that have built up in the education system over the years and they're trying to address it. You know, so you think um, you know, full subject-based bending, doing away with the PSLE T-score, 
looking at a continual education and training and lifetime cohort participation rate versus just you know within the person's school years. But I think where the arms race analogy is apt is because, you know, it's not just something that's being done, but there's always a counter reaction, right? So it's not a static process of, okay, the MOE rolls out these measures, problem solved. Because the way I would think very naturally as a parent, you know, or maybe as a student, what's next? What can I do to secure a better future or an advantage, you know, when it comes to my child being hired in the workforce? So, for example, if you do away with grading for project work, that might trigger some students to consider other ways to distinguish themselves from the herd. And does it inadvertently create another source of pressure for students who may feel that they have to perform not just in their studies, but in a non-academic sense? You know, would students feel compelled to take up more CCAs for the sake of it rather than doing so because of genuine interest? And I think there's also the question of how students are evaluated. So let's say we say, okay, sure, we're looking at all-rounded attributes and stuff that you do outside of exams, right? But would even that kind of assessment be subject to certain biases, like perhaps favouring extroverts who may be more comfortable in that kind of group or public setting? And at what point does the arms race stop? Or at what point does each policy change then trigger you know, an opportunity for students to collect another badge? Yeah, you made a good point. I mean, even in the corporate world, the working world, people will be wondering why should you do this outside of your job scope, right? You know, To get the better appraisal at the end of the year? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the thing is that we are dealing with, you know, your young kids, you know, young, young parents. But of course, I do admit that young parents these days are a lot more knowledgeable than maybe, say, our older parents were. You know, they just left us to it, trusted everything that the teachers did. Nowadays, young parents are a lot more active, proactive, taking an active role in looking at the progress of the children. So as you said, you can roll out a policy, but is the, the mindset of the parents and even the kids themselves, are they even ready to make this adjustment? And Jean, what about you? I mean, how do you feel about this? I think it's something that Singapore has kind of been struggling with for a long time. I think I personally remember PSLE scores being tied to personal worth quite a lot. All these steps that they are taking to kind of take the emphasis away from that, I would like to think it does help. But I also grew up in a time where CCA points were a thing and people collected volunteering and community work on top of, you know, playing some sport for their school or the country just so they could try and what, subtract a few points off their O-level scores. So I, I, I would like to think that it works, but I do think that the arms race has been on for a while. <laughs> Okay, great discussion here. You know, obviously we can go on a lot longer like Parliament did, but uh, we're not going to do that. And we're going to hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll be back in two weeks' time. Now, thanks, Grace, for your insights again. Thank you, Ernest. And Jean, glad to have you here with us on your podcasting debut, sharing your coverage of the youth issues and also your thoughts on them. Thank you for having me. Well, that's a wrap for In Your Opinion. I'm Ernest Lewis. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read Grace Ho's, Jean Yao's or ST's opinion columns, there are links in our podcast show notes. Thanks for listening. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. 
For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.